Hello, David Oakes here and welcome to the final Trees of Crowd of the year and what a year it has been. Interviews have been recorded across the length and breadth of the United Kingdom and even as far afield as the Maldives. It is doubly lovely, therefore, for me to release this episode, which I recorded back in March at the very beginning of this journey. I believe this was my fifth interview, I think. So, here to talk to you about pangolins, David Attenborough, and with a rundown of how to produce your own TV natural history documentary, this is Victoria Bromley, and this is Teresa Crowd. In the depth of the forest, an old oak moved the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Whether spotter or twitcher, scribbling on jotter or pitcher, I'm going to talk to people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, we're back in Bristol, home to the BBC's Natural History Unit and where I went to drama school. We're here to meet wildlife filmmaker Victoria Bromley. She has worked as part of the BBC's Natural History Unit on some of their most recognisable programmes, including Spring Watch and Planet Earth 2. She is now working freelance and most recently directed and produced a documentary focusing on the plight of the little-known pangolin. Victoria, hello and welcome to Trees A Crowd. Hello. So you make documentaries for a living. I do. And I do it as a hobby. <laughs> so this is not a little intimidating. You're doing um, very well so far. So far. I've only been going for, how long is that, one minute? Just over the minute mark. Okay, it can only go downhill from here. <laughs> So let's start at the very beginning, I guess. Like, okay. what, what's your earliest memory of, of the natural world? Oh, crikey. Um, it's a small question to start with. Yeah, Should absolutely. Should probably delve back, that, yeah. Um, Where was home? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in the Midlands, um, Leicestershire, and then in Coventry. So not the most sort of beautifully wild of places, but they well, were I definitely... I spent a bit of my early days in Thurnby, oh, so God. I sort of know that yeah, area you know a little my bit. Um, but it's, yeah, I'd certainly remember... Lots of walks in the woods with my granddad, who is possibly the biggest encyclopedia on birds I've ever met. And um, for me, like, it was always a revelation. I had quite a big imagination as a child, and I could really just get lost in nature. I loved it. And so there was a, there was a Ford near our house called Camley Ford, um, which was often... It was just, just a very small area between quite a big highway and another another main road mm. and it was just sort of trapped there with this really pretty pretty ford running through it pretty brook and um i take the dogs down there and you could sort of feel like it was your own own special place so it's very much an urban upbringing yeah <laughs> with splashes of nature but i had some of my earliest memories of nature really affecting me i remember going to the yorkshire dales uh-huh. and seeing seeing the rivers there in the it must have just been a stream, but there were these white boulders and this clear water, and just thinking it was magical, thinking like it was something out of a fairy tale. Was it something that you felt that you couldn't latch onto? Was it always a fiction? Like, as someone who crafts stories now from the natural world, do you see it objectively in that way? Yeah, it definitely, it definitely sort of the fact that I had quite a, a wild imagination, read a lot of books, read a lot of stories, and um, would take myself away to these places you could come into places in nature and really feel like you'd stepped into the book mm-hmm. that you'd, you'd uncovered the secret and it always felt very private and very personal uh, and I loved being in nature on my own 
um, it helped that it was the 80s and parents were a bit more okay with you just sure. wandering off. <laughs> yeah. We don't like to look back on the 80s that fondly, but every now and yeah. again you go, it was nice when we didn't have to lock the doors. Yeah. I remember being read The Animals of Farthing Wood as a kid. Oh, yeah. And spending an entire holiday hiding under the bed pretending to be a mole. Yeah. Yeah, um, Wind in the Willows, definitely a very a, a close favourite. And yeah, Farthingwood. The cartoon was fantastic as well. It was. Yeah. I remember, I remember, I mean, they went full on anthropomorphic cuteness. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, which I think probably has quite a lot to answer for. <laughs> Do you find as a mother now that you're trying to sort of get your kid actively involved? Uh, well, he's only five months, so uh, uh, at the moment he's, he's never uh, too young. To <laughs> he's never too young. Uh, but he definitely loves trees, that's his thing, So, which is, which is great. Does he just stare and point? Uh, he just loves looking. At the moment, it's just all very immersive. But yeah, you do definitely, when you love something and you then you have, you bring a child into the world, you, you do feel this need. You just hope that they don't get to 13 and like hate nature. <laughs> I'm sure you never would. Well, at least you know that you will be actively responsible for that too. Yeah. <laughs> at least you know that parenting has an actual sort of real life impact. Yeah, definitely. So what happened then? So you're in Leicestershire or... Uh, in the Midlands. Up uh, in the Midlands. And nature is something that you sort of see through your grandfather's eyes through birds or yeah so he signed me up for the wwf when i was i remember this package arriving in the post when i was probably about seven so you know you're so young you don't get post and then i opened it up and you got this little medallion and a book and that kind of opened my eyes a little bit to conservation he's uh a bit of a anarchist i would say when it comes to his approach to nature um he I won't mention the name of the woodland in case he gets chucked out of any kind of committee, but um, he uh, he would walk around the woods in common and uh, if he'd been on holiday and found a plant that he found particularly interesting, he might start scattering seeds where those seeds shouldn't be and, and, and suddenly this ah. rare plant would spring up and there'd be all hell would break loose. Well, that, at committee. least that's more creative. I saw someone cutting down wild daffodils for the garden the other day and mm. I thought that's very antisocial, but at least he's sort of going the opposite direction. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then he would be on the committee, so when they'd have a meeting to say, oh, we have to get rid of this invasive plant, he'd be like, oh, but it's right next to this plant. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and, you know, he would hand feed the birds and, sure. and things like that, so it was all very... Again, quite magical. Did he work with nature, or was this just... no? He worked. He worked in a tights factory, so, <laughs> and that's something you know. I it's on my long list, and it definitely has to come up that list of people I want to interview in my life. And he's had such an influence, and so it's it's something that I I really need to get on now. He's getting a bit older. I I had this kit out last night, just making sure it was ready to go. I was staying at my father's and started to record him just rabbiting on. He mm. believes he should be presenting the uh, Today programme or oh, yeah. weather forecast. <laughs> um, but I did sit there going, I should come down and record this, mm. not only for his current grandchildren, but any potential future ones that might come along. Yeah. He's got, I mean, he's not natural history stories as such, but he's a, the, the, he's a vicar. There'd be fascinating examples yeah. of how he's watched the world change. Anyway, this isn't about me. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so then school... You went to university in Reading. I did. <laughs> and you studied? I studied film and theatre and television. So and that was departure. to tell dramatic stories, or were you always sort of leaning to the conservationist bent? Um, no, it was it was very much, I was. I loved theatre, I loved performance, I um, really loved production, and being mm-hmm. I'd been involved in every school play since I, I started, and so I was convinced I was going to act. That was before I realised I had stage fright. So um, that's a bit debilitating. And um, 
So I became much more interested in the directing side of things. Um, and to be honest, on reflection, that's what I'd always been doing when I was sure. younger. I'm the eldest of five kids. And so I was always putting on plays and bossing people around, Did which I suppose is technically what directing could be. I think <laughs> it very much is. I think even every director would admit that they get a kick out of having a clipboard perhaps and shouting at people. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. Honestly, please keep hiring me. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so what point does a, a film studies and how does that turn into? So I was working in the arts. It was um, a bit of a departure when I came to, to natural history. I moved to Bristol and I, I was working in theatre, various roles, sort of stage managing and then assistant directing. And I came to Bristol with my then partner and the, if I'm completely honest, the work dried up. Uh, it was 2008 there wasn't a lot of arts founding going on and so I was looking for work and this opportunity came up at the BBC for a production management assistant which is sort of bottom rung but a a good step in on the production management side of things which I was quite experienced Mm -hmm. for Um, and when I went it was to cover um, all the programs that were made in BBC Bristol at the time and I happened to have an interview my second interview was with the children's department and and then the natural history and I remember them asking me why I wanted to work there mm-hmm. and I just said well you know when it comes to television it can sometimes feel like a guilty pleasure you sort of don't want to say what did you do with your evening I watched a lot of television yeah. but when you watch something like planet earth or a documentary like that it feels like a really good meal you feel like you've you've been nurtured in some way and a um, number of conversations I've heard recently about the Dynasties series. Yes. And people going, oh my God, did you see that penguin? Yeah. Oh God. And it becomes oh, a, it's a shared experience that everybody's had. Yeah. Watching that with my newborn baby in my arms, I was an absolute wreck. <laughs> I know the guy who produced that. And I was like, curse, you will. Um, you bastard. Yeah. You, you orchestrated this <laughs> whole thing. Baby people are crying across the world because of you. Yeah. So it was very much like a practical, a practical thing. Um, but what I realised getting into it and, and starting to move more into the research side of things was that I was actually going back to quite a lot of what I was doing when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So recently, um, my six, six my nephew's six years old, and my mum said, oh, he's been really getting into this book that I found that I think your brother must have stolen from school. <laughs> um, and it turned out it wasn't. It was one of my books. And it was on... That you'd stolen from school? That, no, no, no. That I had bought legitimately, I'm sure, or had sure. appeared on my bookshelf. And you just but... took that sticker from the library and stuck it in the front because you liked exactly. the idea of it being a public <laughs> resource. And it was um, Animals of the Lakes and Rivers. And I opened it up and I thought it was brilliant because the stories that were in there were literally stories from shows that I've worked on or my colleagues have been working on. Um, quite quite rare and abstract stories like the archer fish that shoots water to knock prey off mm. branch insects into the water and, and things like that. And um, and I just thought, well, this is brilliant because I, I loved these, these reference books. I loved reading about nature. But whereas I think a lot of my colleagues come from a zoological background and, you know, they would be able to tell you the Latin name of an animal or have studied it, I was the kid that was convinced I was having a conversation with a robin. Sure. You know, I'd, I'd sit for hours watching these animals and probably anthropomorphizing quite a fair bit, but I came at it more from, from that direction. I don't think there's anything... I've just come from, from Kimmeridge talking to Steve Etches, who's, who would say himself, he was just a fossil hunter, mm. um, but has since sort of become one of the main resources for the Kimmeridgean uh, fossil reserves. Mm. And it's sort of that amateur enthusiasm that mm. starts off perhaps uh, ignorable by the establishment and then starts to become 
vital to them. I think there's no accounting for passion. I think if you're if you're moved by something, and really that's where television, you talk about the impact of a series like Dynasties, and that's the kind of privilege of our position as filmmakers, is that we get to move people, we get to show them nature and, and mm. actually have them emotionally engage with it. And I think that's a very important responsibility because it can be a real catalyst for change. So you started as a researcher? Uh, yeah, so production management assistant, then on to research, assistant producer, producer. What would you say those key stages are? Like, How do you get it? How, how does a project start? I guess that's the main thing. Okay, so um, a project usually starts with the seed of an idea. So if we take my most recent project as an example, um, so this was Pangolins. Yeah. Um, BBC Two <laughs> still pops up on iPlayer from time to time. If you're interested, it was um, commissioned by a series called Natural World. So, uh, a friend of mine, Senna Christofferson, was doing her masters at uh, the University of West of England, and she paid her own way to Namibia um, to meet and film with um, a lady called Maria Deepman. Mm-hmm. Um, so, she's one of the very few people in the world um, who have been able to hand rear pangolins successfully in captivity. So um, she had found this woman with a pangolin living in her home, which was just incredible. I think it's... I, I've seen the documentary, and I think it's worth stating this point. We should probably... Yeah, let's say what a pangolin is. <laughs> go. So a pangolin is a mammal, but I think most people looking at it would think that it was some sort of small dinosaur or... Slash wood louse. Yeah, a wood louse. Uh, it's called, sometimes called a pine cone on legs. Um, they have these completely um, unique scales, which are made of keratin, um, which overlap and form this armour. Depending on the species, they walk on four or two legs. The one that we were focusing on walks on two and holds its hands a little bit like Mr Burns from The Simpsons. Uh, yeah, honey bun. <laughs> honey bun. <laughs> the it's, it's so adorably cute. Sort of having just touched on the animals of farthing wood and the anthropomorphic, <laughs> anthropomorphic nature of things, it's impossible to look at Honey Bun running around the garden and not just sort of want to hug her. Oh, I know. But I wouldn't Maria recommend it. And <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. She's got very strong claws <laughs> um, for tearing into um, basically concrete, hard sand and ground to get to the ants. To get to the ants. Um, so they are insect eaters. They have tongues that are longer than their body. They have tiny beady eyes. They have these big claws. And, you know, if you described it, you would not think that they could be cute but as you say they are absolutely adorable Mm -hmm. and they are also the world's most illegally trafficked wild mammal so it's an animal that most people never heard of and before most people do it will probably go extinct before we get into the conservation aspect of your job let me go back to to so uh so my friend was was studying at university she paid her way to namibia to spend time with maria and her pangolin honey bun Uh, and she produced this fantastic short film um which she showed to a group of us as friends um ahead of ahead of it going out for her masters and I just took her down the pub sort of Shanghai mm-hmm. <laughs> style and said this needs to be bigger it's amazing you know the access so from there we we put together a document and we took it to the series Natural World and pitched it to them so at that stage we had the commission um we we, we made a little promo of the footage she had already and and sold it to an American co-producer to put in more money mm-hmm. um and then from there you kind of go back to the drawing board somewhat. You start your research in earnest. Um, for me, that was sort of six weeks of reading everything that pretty much has ever been written on pangolins. But the most interesting thing you said on the phone to me was that this, as a species that we don't know a huge amount about, no. it was quite easy to do 
all the research in a very short amount of time. <laughs> well, it was compared to some sort of lions where you're at the top of a very high mountain of data and information and studies. And, you know, often you're trying to find a new way of telling quite a familiar story or, you know, a new way of approaching uh, a well-known animal. With pangolins, they've barely been filmed. Mm-hmm. So I think the twice they'd appeared on the BBC, it was next to David Attenborough. So once in Bali in the 50s when he was mm-hmm. on ZooQuest and then once in Africa uh, more recently with the Tiki Highwood Foundation. So there'd never been any footage of them going about their, their sort of day in, in their natural habitat. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was that this, this shocking conservation crisis hadn't really been addressed on television. And so, yeah, the six weeks were by turns fascinating, learning about the animal, by turns very depressing. Mm-hmm. My researcher and I had um, sort of Google alerts coming in on Monday and every week was seizures and bad news. And we basically had to pep each other up. We were depressing the entire office and we'd have to just get through it. And A we... friend of mine watched your <laughs> documentary and only got halfway through. She was finding it so depressing. And oh. I was like, no, with animal documentaries, you need to stick to the end. Because oh, we, there's always sort of this positive goal that brings you back into, no, you need to do more. But so... there's the imagery of that poor one that loses the leg through the snare is... It's tough. That's really shocking. Yeah. Um, I think I first came to Pangolins through the Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition. Yes, there was, that's right, Paul Hilton. Yes, those images of the pangolin pit and the, just the sheer volume of these creatures that are being used to make money in medicine, Chinese medicine is, mm. is, is oh, it's heart-wrenching. Yeah, anyway, we've gone off our topic. This we is, have, this yeah, we've had all a good about pangolins. <laughs> If you would like to know more about pangolins, watch the documentary. I think that's probably the, the best way to do it. Everything is much better and more chronologically ordered through that presentation yeah. as opposed to this meandering discussion. Yeah, I suppose, um, going back to your question, if people sort of want to understand a little bit more about the different roles within a team, you would have researchers who are finding your stories, finding your angles, looking at the, the hard science, mm-hmm. um, you would have producers who are directing that, looking for uh, making the decisions about what will be filmed, um, where it will be filmed, how it will be filmed. Um, assistant producers who would be on location doing a lot of directing and above them a series producer overseeing the, the vision, as it were, for the whole sure. thing. So that's a very quick summary. Uh, I should say, very importantly, there's also the production management side. So I started out as a production management assistant and I also did some production coordinating. Those are the people who actually get you to location, which at times can be incredibly complicated feats of wonder. So um, you're a fixer. Uh, yeah. Or were a fixer. Uh, oh, no, no. Yeah, the, we have fixers on location. Uh, so it takes a lot to get to get these things off the ground and to get into... So. What did your work on Planet Earth 2 uh, uh, contain? So I came into Planet Earth 2 as a gun for hire, effectively, which was really nice. Like That project had a dedicated team for the best part of four years, and I really got to do the fun bit. So I came in uh, in the last year of filming, lots of shoots still to go, not a lot of time, and basically was handed lots of... um, lovely opportunities to uh, to go and direct in the field with very, very talented camera people. I mean, that's one of the true privileges of our job. How many is, countries uh, did you end up going to? Uh, I think that year there's maybe six countries. So it's quite a hectic, and these are long shoots. Uh-huh. So, you know, you sort of miss your summer, really, and you come back a little bit shell-shocked. But, uh, yeah, you're, you're away with some incredible people, um, some of, you know, the best cinematographers out there with the cinematographer that turned up on the pangolin had you worked with him before uh so brad uh was actually filming for wild aid and uh-huh. he came up came uh, with us for a day uh and i had met Brad before he's he's very well renowned particularly 
um, in Botswana where he, he lives and works. Sure. And uh, But I was actually working with a camerawoman um, for the majority of that series um, okay. and a cameraman in Asia. So Sue Gibson was our camera op for, um, for Pangolins. I think that when you watch a documentary, you sort of imagine... I don't know, David Attenborough personally flying from all these locations. <laughs> and he's got this wonderful sort of eco-friendly jet as he lands from place to place. That is it, yeah. Because when you're thinking about actually interviewing a producer of these films, you then go, okay, so we were in Namibia, and now we're over to Vietnam, and now... Yes, yeah, there is a sort of irony with nature documentaries that, you know, we are flying a lot of equipment, great distances. Mm-hmm. And I think there's more of a move now to, you know, trying to make production is more carbon neutral a colleague of mine just did an amazing film for natural world uh, called the whale detectives and they managed they made it a priority of their production to reduce their impact as much as possible so whether mm. that was you know skyping for meetings you know just sensible yeah. small measures um but i think the biggest thing is we need to have more of a legacy we need to leave talent and, and skills in the countries that we work because there are, like I say, Brad who who lives and works in Botswana. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't think to you know really ask anyone else. He's there yeah, and, he's, and he's he's, he's and he's fantastically experienced. But you know, ideally, we should be helping to build this around the world. And that's not really the case at the moment. That's a new agenda, I guess. I think so. Yeah, I think I think the the tide is changing. Um, it's very much you know a British institution yeah. in some ways, but. There is a, an element of sort of flying in and then flying back out again. And we do need to, from a conservation perspective, think more sensitively. In our a lot of the work that I've done as an actor has been in Eastern Europe. And mm. quite often it's because American or Irish or British crews have gone out and trained up Hungarians and mm. built studios. And subsequently the legacy mm. goes on, so much so that the Hungarian crews are now some of the best in the world. Yeah. Um, people actively want to go to Hungary to shoot things as opposed to just going for a tax break or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the, the, the fact that documentaries, wildlife documentaries, are a British institution. Mm. I mean, I think it's sort of even more precise than that. They seem to be an institution made by one man. Indeed. Have you worked with David much? Um, I have met David on two occasions, one very early on in my career, and then I was very grateful that he agreed to narrate the pangolin documentary for us he'd had his own as i say encounters with pangolins in his early career and i knew he had a great affection for them so um it made a lot of sense there's nothing quite like though receiving a letter handwritten letter back from david attenborough something that you carry around with you a lot imagining it's framed somewhere in the house Uh, yeah Actually, I'm not sure where it is, but it's very, <laughs> it's very precious. I'm sure it's fine. But uh, he he operates very traditionally. You have to you have to um, send him a letter, and yeah, we're very lucky to to receive that back. And not too many notes on the scripts, though he is um, very hands on in that in that department. Well, I, I think that's what comes through with his work is there's an integrity to it, based mm-hmm. around I guess seventy seventy five years worth of of doing it. He understands that there is real value to this um what was he like to work with like in the room so he's fantastic when he um you know often you'll be working with voice actors i could have someone like yourself coming in and you know well i've got the same first name so maybe that yeah maybe you can work your way in (laughs) (laughs) um you know if you're working if you're working with somebody who who might have um you know be coming in from comedy or, or from a from a different place you you might take time it might be a few hours with david it's it's one read through and then you go back and pick up anything anything that you need because he's such a pro mm. i mean as you say he's been doing this for 
the best part of 75, 80 years. And, yeah, uh, and um, he's the consummate professional. He's also quite theatrical in the way he performs the scripts, which is uh-huh. great. So, you know, using, using his arms. But the first time I met him was obviously very nerve-wracking. I was a relatively new researcher, and we were interviewing him about um, his very famous, the footage of him meeting with the gorillas. Mm-hmm. So he'd gone out, um, and he, was, uh, he met Diane Fossey and was, was filming with her, her gorillas there. And um, he did something which I, I've come to, come to learn is something he, he, he does. He, he laid a trap, or at least he wants to check just how on it you are, because obviously <laughs> he's sort of dependent on... He's handed these scripts, this information, where he's asked these questions, and he wants to know that you know your stuff. Sure. Because his, his reputation is on the line, his, you know. And uh, so sort of midway... Midway through, he turned to me and said, oh, how many gorillas did Diane have at that time? And I, I just jumped in and I thought, oh, it's, it's, I think it was 660. So David, and he was like, oh, yes, of course. He knew. He knew how many gorillas <laughs> she had. He just wanted to know that I knew. Um, so that was that was quite nice. And then and then I think he was like, all right. You got through fine. the gates. You got through the gates, yeah. But, yeah it's, you do feel a bit on edge. <laughs> He's utterly irreplaceable. Um, you know, not only... Has he been a presenter, um, a filmmaker? He was the head of one of the channels as well. Yes, yes. I don't know. He, worked, he started he, in radio. He famously refused to give Terry Wogan a job. I remember reading <laughs> his letter. He, young Terry, who had presented a radio show in Ireland on Irish Radio, wrote to, uh, to David Attenborough, who was then the controller of BBC Radio, mm. and said, please can I have a job. And, and David just wrote back saying, I don't think you've got enough experience. <laughs> anyway, that's kind of wonderful. Yeah, there's, there's been... I remember... There's a documentary that Leonardo DiCaprio made a few years back and then got offered a quite high climate award for his effort in trying to sort of combat climate change. And he flew for the day from Los, uh, Los Angeles to pick it up. Excellent. And to just go, <laughs> everything that you could have done there has, has been obliterated. You get with David Attenborough that it's, there's no ego attached to it. No, no. The, the greater good is... Is the is the natural world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, he's someone that I'm happy to say is. They say don't meet your heroes, but if you're going to meet David Attenborough, it's just <laughs> lovely. <laughs> so anyway, going back to you, we've gone too far away. What do you think you take from him? Like, what do you want to do? What's your personal agenda when you make a film? So my personal agenda, I think, is authenticity. Um, I had the real privilege of working on a series about Mexico in um, 2016 and Mexico very unusually um, it's a huge country and I think the Natural History Unit had only really filmed there a couple of times they filmed in the caves of planet earth Mm -hmm. and then Baja is the peninsula Uh, there's a lot of whale activity there but aside from those two hotspots there really hadn't been very much wildlife filmmaking and it was such a privilege to to be able to take on a country that I think it's fair to say has a sort of reputation mm-hmm. um, in the UK and particularly in the US, but to reveal to people that it's, it's just one of my favourite places in the world. It's um, it's so dynamic. It's got such a range of habitats. The people as well. There's over sixty indigenous groups in Mexico speaking their own languages um so we were covering the landscapes the people and the and the wildlife and mm. that for me was was sort of that all-encompassing opportunity to um to actually show something authentic because i think it's very easy to you know cartel land was an amazing documentary 
but that was sort of the worst of the worst. Yeah. Also, he was doing some crazy things, like sitting in a car with people with guns pointing at his camera. Yeah. Which, um, <laughs> I, wow, I just amazed by the guy, but also the part of me that writes risk assessments was like biting my, biting my fingernails off. And uh, so to, to get under the skin of a place and to, um, to actually present it in a positive way, but, but in a real way mm-hmm. as well. So filming with the family at Day of the Dead and um, going to meet these conservationists. Uh, like one family has saved an area of Mexico's forest and mountain in the deserts that's like the size of Wales. Sure. And that's just pure, purely through their own dedication. It was amazing. Do you think it might become your thing to actively show the way in which we relate to the natural world? Looking at the, going back to the Pangolin film it's very much a film of two halves. There's the pangolins and then the people who uh, relate to the pangolins, whether in a positive or a negative manner. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, for me, it's all about how we interact with nature. I mean, we are an integral part of nature in for better or for worse, mm. um, usually for worse. And um, one of the first films that I had the opportunity to produce on was um, looking at the plight of the Siberian tiger and the incredible people who were working to save the last few and it was such an eye-opener you know working in Russia for one thing uh, it's a very different world particularly for a woman working there but um and uh, the extremes of temperature in Siberia the, the hardiness of these people and yet they care so much you know when they're cradling these these mm-hmm. tiger cubs that they've they've trekked for days tracked down and, and rescue after their mother was killed and um, what's very reassuring, actually, is traveling the world and, and finding that wherever country you're in, there are people who have been moved in care for wildlife. You could argue the opposite is true. It's upsetting that we have to find these people who are caring for it and it's not just taken for granted. Yeah, I, I suppose so. But I think it's, I think it's um, a lot to put on the individual yeah. to expect them to save the world. I think it's um, what's been interesting off the back of programs like Blue Planet have I mean, you could almost call it the, the Blue Planet 2 effect um, with the plastics episode is, is the uproar and and the positive kind of energy that's that's come to people wanting to make change. But the most effective change comes through legislation. Mm-hmm. I mean, the government introduced a 5p ban on plastic bags and it reduced the use of plastic bags by 85%. Sure. And I feel like the tide is definitely changing now because businesses particularly respond to legislation and well not so much legislation but public perception so again there's that responsibility something like planet earth too it's suddenly uncool to produce plastic to use plastic to you know and you just have to look at greg's producing a vegan sausage roll they they move with the times they but it's not so much that they're moving with the times it's they're moving with public perception yeah and money i guess yeah absolutely that changes everything if you could make it financially viable for everybody to be kinder to the planet exactly exactly people you know people are the same the world over they want to be happy they want to take care of their families and and live their live their lives with some purpose if the opportunities that are offered to them allow them to to protect wildlife. It's a bit of an indulgence, really. You know, the UK, we've, we we have a lot of love of nature here, but um, there's also a thousand different opinions on what that means, whether you're a farmer or a, a conservationist. There's there's a, a few Americans at the moment, a few left-wing-leaning politicians who are f- fighting for the introduction of what they call a Green New Deal. A friend of mine was talking about this the other day, mm. and it's incredibly optimistic, but it does have that at the heart of it, that is... 
if you can motivate people to want to make the world better, then that might just happen. But it is about money and industry that has to sort of lead that charge. Absolutely. Um, but I think there is there is power in, in filmmaking to to change people's perceptions. I mean, I don't mean to be too grandiose, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, just as I say, seeing seeing how people have responded to films. I mean, when Pangolins went out, we were trending at number one on Twitter. Oh, wow. And the responses were ranging from WTF is Pangolin to OMG, I love Pangolins <laughs> to... Um, I can't believe they're dying. There was actually, unfortunately, a bit of a um, then an anti-China sentiment that started to emerge, sure. um, especially given that there are a lot of people in China who are working to to try and improve things there and in Vietnam especially. But um, we, we, you know, we had this this huge outpouring, and then there were um, our, the charities that we worked with were deluged with donations, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate, really, um, and I'm really looking forward to the film being shown in China and Vietnam. Because they are the audiences that, that really need to see the film. Sure. Um, they're the you know that's where the markets lie. So has it got a Chinese release lined up? Or? That's still to come. So um, and we'll we'll see. But as it features one of China's biggest celebrities, Indeed. we're hoping that will be a pull. Um, is she still pushing the agenda over there? She set up her own charity, I think. So um, she uh, Angela, Baby, um, Angela Baby works with um, Wild Aid. So she is one of their. Um, uh, sort of their their whole thing is working with celebrities to help promote positive change for the environment. So they're one of their biggest success stories was with Shark Fin Soup. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to curse myself now because I cannot remember his name, but it was a very famous um, basketball player, Chinese basketball player, mm-hmm. um, who came on board for that campaign. And again, the reduction has been incredible. There are sharks recovering now in the Galapagos because the because. value of shark fin soup fell through the floor. And so you know it can the power of celebrity can't actually be underestimated no which, um, which is kind of appalling in itself but again you know it's it's something that breaks through people have busy lives and mm. and um somebody they admire bringing something to their attention can can really stir the passions i do have a lot of optimism for this next generation though i have to say I was out walking with my baby son and the climate strike, the school climate tri- strike was going through town. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought that was, I think that's fantastic. I think that kids taking it into their own hands, but also again, politicians seek votes. Mm-hmm. And and this is the, you know, this is the mood is changing. I do find myself at the moment occasionally just wanting to sort of jump 20 years into the future. Yeah. I think politics is wasted on the generations above me, wasted mm. on my generation who were unfortunately becoming quite angrily apathetic. Mm. But the younger generations seem ready to take over the mantle. I never thought I'd say it before, but I'm up for the voting age to be lowered. Yeah, totally. Um, they seem to be the only people who care, probably yeah. because they don't know what Brexit means yet. Well, also, you know, it's their lives that are being messed with. I mean, it's... It's interesting to think about what the world will be for my son. I mean, David Attenborough talks about, you know, places that he visited mm-hmm. when he was younger, he goes back and how they've changed. Even, you know, when I'm when I'm out on location, oftentimes you're pointing the camera away from a holiday resort to look sure. at this pristine piece of wilderness. Um, and you do start to wonder, like, how much is left, how much will be left for them to enjoy. So you touched on it briefly then. How much, when you make a documentary, do you have, uh, not a script per se, but uh, an overall narrative that you want to present? You say that you occasionally point the camera in the other direction. Mm. How much do you do that with the entire story? 
it would be easy to say, you know, you can't direct a dolphin. You can't say that was wonderful, darling. But let's take it again, a bit more emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you you will be coming at it from um, what's the story of, of this animal, its behaviour, or its or its relationships, or and you will storyboard ahead of time. You will know the key behaviours that you're aiming to get, depending on the the size of the animal and the the access how you can film them will mm-hmm. will dictate you know how how much you can kind of influence what you see some sure. things will have to be at the end of a very very long lens um obviously you don't want to be interfering but there are some stories for example um with insects where it would just would not be possible without bringing them into a studio and putting on heat sensitive lights <laughs> that means that you're not going to fry them alive you yeah. just wouldn't be able to see them so so by its very nature, depending on the story that you're telling, will dictate how, how you know, invasive you may or may not be. Absolutely, or how how involved in um, you are. But you are often very much relying on the skills of your camera operator to capture moments. I was always told that the BBC Natural History Unit was in Bristol because they could just pop to Bristol Zoo and catch all the foley of all the lions. <laughs> Uh, well, it does. They do have an amazing library, an amazing sound library, and uh, I have heard some great stories about um, when Animal Magic was recorded mm. at the Natural History Unit, and they used to bring the baby elephant from the zoo over through the car park, which is quite amazing. But uh, yes, I think it's more now. It's more of a heritage thing that we're sure. all we're all here. <laughs> um, so, do you know what you're working on next? Where's the world about to take you? Uh, I am not sure right now. Uh, I am focusing on my son, but the most wild of yeah, wild life. Wild um, it's not yeah. Parenting is not unlike natural history filmmaking. Um, you're trying to predict the behaviour of, of an animal that can't talk to you. Mm-hmm. You're always up when the sun rises. You carry a lot of equipment. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like in a way my job. You were prepped, prepped for me. this in advance. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it does feel a little bit like I've I've had a you know living on sleep deprivation and odd hours going with the flow certainly helps <laughs> um when you've been out on jobs like do you have like a go bag upstairs for your sort of survival kit oh yeah when you're when you're away a lot you do have your i have my box of stuff but it totally depends on the environment and what tends to happen is like with any any trip you take what you think you need and then you find the one set of gear that or clothes that work for you sure. um are you going to ask me what's in my go bag <laughs> oh, not necessarily, but I mean, oh, like, do you spend long periods of time like camping out like how does it work like mm. if you're if you're in the sahara and you're wasting time mm. going back and forth to the local holiday inn oh no you you will always find you know there's um it again depends on the depends on the story it's always lovely if there's a hotel nearby you know just mm-hmm. to be able to charge your camera equipment is always handy sure. but um you know you may be camping with generators like research stations where you know you're just out in the middle of nowhere and or in some virgin forest and at night it's just absolute silence and Mm -hmm. and stars and obviously hygiene can kind of vary depending on where you are but it's certainly it's one of the one of the joys actually is kind of going back to basics you come home and you suddenly look around your house and think why have I got all this stuff you know it's very much a kind of western living that you kind of accrue Particularly in Britain as well, where the weather is so changeable, you end up with all of this different gear when you've been in the so in the tropics. Or, yeah. But um, that said, you also do take a lot, tend to take a lot of equipment. One of the things I've loved about the more recent sort of big BBC documentaries has been the additional sort of ten minutes at the end mm. where we see on the other the side making of the, the behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, how did they come about? Like, why did people start making those? 
I think they've been they've been around for quite a while now. In fact, there's a lot of conversations around, you know, what their style should be. And um, I uh, was quite pleased on the Mexico series that we sort of took those as an opportunity to tell stories about the people who who were working there and and use it as a chance to make a little departure and and look back in. Because I think there's only so many times you can say this cameraman has sat in a hide for 100 hours. I mean, quite honestly, it's their job. (laughs) They they love it. So um, (laughs) it's like they're doing exactly what they want to do, (laughs) you know. But it is, you know, that's that's downplaying it. It's very tough. But, um, you know, you can only say here's this brand new piece of technology 10 times before it really isn't that brand new piece of technology anymore. But I think people, there is a kind of, it's a dream job for so many people, particularly the, cam- the camera operators mm-hmm. kind of life. I think people imagine traveling to all these different uh, destinations and, um, and the access. I mean, that's one of the biggest perks of the job is going to places that you know other people will never have the opportunity to go to. Is there any particular story you'd like to tell? Yeah, one of the real privileges, one of the places that really affected me, sort of going back to what we were saying about, you know, early early days when I was young and walking into, finding this beautiful stream and thinking it was magic. And when I was in Mexico, we went to a biosphere reserve called El Triunfo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a cloud forest in the mountains, very south um, of Mexico. And it's been preserved. Um, a lot of the people who, who preserve it are actually born there and uh, are now paid to to maintain it but the mountains all around it as you go up are are coffee plantations Mm -hmm. and are being stripped away but um, at the very top you have these ancient forests that haven't been touched and there's nothing more special than walking into virgin forest where everything is still connected and still working because what we tend to do as humans is we take something out of the environment Mm -hmm. and that has a sort of knock-on effect all of the connections start to become broken and even without really understanding it we've affected an environment so to come into a place where the abundance of wildlife and the the density and and the the systems are all working if something if something dies it will be processed it will go back to the earth Mm -hmm. so quickly we were coming across snakes just basking on the paths because they're it's you know they're not perturbed by by people or Mm -hmm. and it was so misty as well to being a cloud forest it would be Mm -hmm. um but we i remember just walking through what was effectively a a sort of gateway of, of trees and it was yeah, I was sort of back in my childhood. It was it was ma- it was Amazing. magical. It sounds like a hidden sort of magic wonderland. Yeah, and it's preser- it's preserved in such a way that people can go. Particularly bird watchers, there's some incredibly rare and magical birds. Um, the horned guan is quite hilarious. Uh, it looks like the um, penguin from Wallace and Gromit. It's got a little red horn oh, okay. on its head and makes noise like a mobile phone, which is very confusing when you're out. In the- <laughs> Everybody's patting themselves down. Even though there's no reception. And then you realise there's a bird buzzing nearby. So a lot of birders will go there and, and sort of pay pay to it, but only a few people are allowed in each year. So again, it's just such a privilege that mm-hmm. we get the chance to go and spend weeks there mm-hmm. um where usually it would just be a sort of stop off on a safari or sure. a yeah or a trip. vip access yeah. um, and then let everybody else in through the magic of technology yeah. mm-hmm. um so we ask three questions to everyone who comes on the podcast okay. um first question if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world where would it be I take you to El, El Triunfo. i think it's fantastic that biosphere is, is particularly amazing and there's these different trails 
it's uh, it's like stepping into the land of the dinosaurs. It's really incredible. So I'd love to go back. Um, second question: Should we colonize the moon? <laughs> I don't really know that there's much up there. I think we've got enough going well, how, on. How do we know until we get there? Well, that's, we have been. <laughs> we did look. <laughs> I'm, I'm rapidly of the belief that this question is becoming redundant, but it's... <laughs> so I've, I've sort of I've terraformed it, and my real question is, should we colonise the seas? Should we colonise the seas? Mm. Oh, wow. Um, we need to clean, clean them up first. I think we should take care of what we have, and I think we should be looking to restore the systems we have that's going to be harder with climate change particularly in the oceans mm-hmm. but uh, a house a house on the sea sounds fabulous <laughs> um, and the third question if you could bring back any species from extinction what would it be? Oh, you see I, I wonder if it would be animals that are kind of on the verge for me so the pangolins we don't know how many are left mm-hmm. and um, we also don't know the impact they have on their environment they're insect eaters so they aerate soil they we don't know what's going to collapse when they go sure. but also the Siberian tiger for me east to Rome all the way to the Ural Mountains and now there's only 300 of them left in a tiny slice of, of the uh, Mancurian Plain When you get to 93 years old like David Attenborough mm. and you've worked not only with the Siberian tigers not only with the pangolins mm. how are you going to have enough heart left to devote yourself to all of these wonderful species? <laughs> There's always room. Always I mean, that's the question I should probably ask him. Yeah. But it's how, how can you be encountered by so much fragility and destruction of man and still keep going back to try and save them? It's, it's well, I mean, I, I don't really see... I, I see the people that I film as the people who are really giving all that effort to saving them. We, we have the unique privilege of jumping in. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was interviewing people who have been working for 25 years with... Um, the Siberian tigers or 40 years with black bears you know people who devoted their lives and their careers and to see that is incredibly inspiring and and makes you go back you know with a sense of hope and positivity um, because there are these warriors out there who are devoting themselves. Do they ever approach you? Do you um, ever sort of get requests saying we would like to tell our usually story? Usually they're too busy like honestly, um, you know Maria, who I filmed with recently Honeybun. with Honeybun, um, literally will get a call in the middle of the night and just have to drive six hours. Namibia is a large country mm-hmm. um, to go and pick up an animal, or and the same with the with um, say Vietnam's wildlife in Vietnam. They are totally stretched. There's no funding. There's no time, and they're in a race against extinction. And usually they're very humble people. Mm-hmm. They don't see what they're doing as remarkable. They see it as necessary. And that is what makes them very inspiring. So it's important that people like you give them that exposure. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to convince them, um, you know, especially if they've had negative experiences in the past um, with media. But yes, you you really want to kind of bang the drum for mm. the amazing work they're doing. You want to give it back to them. I mean, this is what I say about with the making of at the end of programs. I think rather than saying, look at these people who got to go off and... And stay in a and, and ha- Yeah, have an amazing adventure. It's look at the people who've actually been here for, the you know, the best part of six decades mm-hmm. taking care of taking care of the animals. Well, the kindness and compassion of Maria certainly comes out of your pangolin film. So I think you did your job oh, sublimely you. there. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Nice to talk to you too.
A huge thank you to Victoria for taking part in this podcast and for having agreed to participate before it even existed and before I knew what the heck I was doing. I have loved making this podcast over the year and I hope you have enjoyed listening to it too. 2020 is already shaping up to be a stonker of a season for the show, which includes a live recording on the 10th of January in southern Scotland. More details to follow. Watch our social media streams. Speaking of social... Please social the scat out of us. Leave reviews on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on Spotify, tell your friends, make an Instagram story, needlepoint a squirrel-shaped hat, etc. It really makes a difference to help me share these stories of these fascinating, important people. We'll be back fully in 2020, and if I can cajole my elves appropriately, we're hoping to get out a little Christmas treat for you too, so keep your ears peeled. Anyway, I've been David Oakes, you've been wonderful... And this is Trees A Crowd. Oh, the oak and the 